If you've ever taken an Introduction to Art History course, then you probably have a bookshelf that is buckling under the weight of the doorstopper textbook that you had to buy. Of course, any art history major knows that these books are really good for pressing wildflowers and flattening rolled-up rugs. But are they actually good for telling the story of the history of art? Can that even be done? Can something that big, yet that brief, cover that much material? And can it do it with any actual depth or nuance when movements are reduced to paragraphs? whole continents are relegated to a single chapter. It's easy to wonder really what and whose story you're actually being told. Enter the critic, author, and broadcaster Charlotte Mullins and her new book, The Compact, even, I dare say, adorable, A Little History of Art. It's smaller and lighter than any textbook, Yet it still manages to squeeze in a hundred thousand years of art history, and many of the artists that my textbook certainly overlooked. And, beautifully, it brings you into the moment of the artwork's creation. Charlotte and I talked about the story of art buried deep in the textbooks, about how art history has been taught, and how that teaching has evolved, and how to write about art, and a lot more. Please enjoy. Hello, my name is Charlotte Mullins. I'm an art critic and broadcaster and I live in London. Tell me about your book. Well, it's 100,000 years of art history crammed into a rather small book uh, for an <laughs> art book. I mean, it's the size of a paperback. Um, and in those kind of 250 pages, we, uh, we squash in everything from cave art and the very earliest marks right the way through to, I'm very excited to say, Beyonce and Jay-Z who make it into the final chapter. Oh, <laughs> yes, I really appreciated that, actually. Um... So that's actually, I mean, that's a good starting point. I guess our starting point is everything distilled. And that was what I wanted to ask just to start things off. How do you distill these movements, the significance of an artwork? Because it's never just about one artwork. And I, I personally, my art history philosophy, if you know, everybody has one, um, is very much the idea that an object is a byproduct of something bigger. Um, and that's just me. You know, I, I was never, I never had a whole lot of interest staying inside the frame. I really appreciate how what's outside the frame is, you know, we have these artworks that act as, you know, maybe byproduct is a little dismissive, but, but kind of portals into something much larger. And what you're doing is essentially not the opposite, but you're taking something so, so big, 100,000 years, and really distilling it down to its essence. And I'm curious, kind of just from your art historical philosophy, <laughs> you know, where do you decide the story is? Where in, a, in an artwork does the story live? And how does that... Um, you know, how does kind of finding that kernel then lead you to be able to, to take all of history and really distill it down? Yeah, well, to, to start with, I'm with you on the fact I think art should be put back in context. 
So I do think art suffers sometimes from being on a gallery wall, particularly when it wasn't made for that um, particular context. So if you, um, I was just looking today at uh, works by Caravaggio and Caracci in this incredible tiny chapel in Rome and thinking about them, if they were on the walls of a gallery, you don't get the uh, competition that those paintings are are having between you know two very different styles of painting, um, post-Renaissance, really fighting Caravaggio with his theatrical dark backgrounds and very earthy colors, Caracci with his very clean classical lines and the um, Virgin Mary ascending to heaven with open arms. But when we look at Caravaggio, it's like looking at a film. So they are, mm -hmm. you know, they're two different styles, they're, they're competing against each other. Um, and so I really believe in context for one, but I agree, you know, when you make a book that is uh, ambitious enough to cover the whole world and the whole of art history, um, then, uh, but you're not making something in multi-volume, then you have to distill it and you have to reduce um, reduce it down. And you, ha in a way, it just felt almost like writing a haiku. So I had to think of, let's say, the whole of minimalism and think, A, should it be in? B, if it's in, who really represents that? And which work can I describe to convey that at, uh, in its best form to someone who might not have any art knowledge. So my book is very much aimed at the curious reader, but you don't mm -hmm. need any knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. And so something like minimalism, which is quite conceptual, quite maybe challenging to um, to understand, a work had to deliver the kind of essence of that subject. So that's why, you know, I often think of your podcast as, as kind of a, an ode to an artwork, you know, it's a hmm. beautiful long poem to an artwork, <laughs> whereas mine's the opposite. It's haiku, <laughs> move on, haiku, move on, if I'm lucky. You know, because haikus yeah. are magnificent um, poems. Yeah. Uh, but I really wanted to bring out, um, put the artwork at the at the heart of the book, um, and put it back in context. So what you're saying about putting things in context, every chapter in the book, there are 40 chapters, and everyone starts back in time with an object or an artwork in context. And right. that was 100% fundamental to me. I was actually, I was going to say that. That was what struck me so much about the book. And what I uh what you actually don't see very often because art history textbooks are always you know i mean we all know how a textbook reads it's a you know it's like in the seagull and the little mermaid this is this and that is that you know but uh the way that you deliberately start every chapter and you say at the beginning that we're all going to be time travelers with you we're all going to be put in the moment and I love the the phrase. I think it's Jenny Holzer, but but maybe it's just mis misattributed um, that all art has been contemporary, and so you'll see that you know you'll see that on a uh, when I was living in Berlin in the ancient um, art museum, they had that huge all art has been contemporary in neon lights, and I thought that was so cheeky and charming because people don't ever think that ancient art you know people think that it, it kind of exists for us in our moment to have ancient art in our world you know we <laughs> don't think of it as this is something that people actually lived through and i think that when you do start thinking about art that way it's a total it, it completely recalibrates the way that you think about what art is 
Um, and so the way that you kind of bring us in, is there one in particular or, or something that you could describe from the book where you really kind of give us an example of taking us into that space? Sure. You know, what the first the first one I wrote, um, the first chapter I wrote, I think the first chapter in any book is is often the one that takes the most time. It was about cave art, but it's also so it's the earliest art, prehistoric art, but it's also the chapter um, that has to tackle what the book is about. So <laughs> this particular book sits in a series of little histories, and um, the one of the um, things of little histories, there's no introduction. You go straight in. So. I, you know, I took that literally and we go straight in and we follow two people into a cave system in France. It's 17,000 years ago. There's a river running and they climb up into a dark corridor and they walk past um, um, old skeletons of bears and they're looking at scratched engravings of bisons on the wall and they're having to crawl at some points. They go half a kilometre mm -hmm. into this cave system. All they can have had is a, a flaming torch, of course. And then they go into a cave where the, the stalagmites are, um, or stalactites rather, are dripping water into the cave. So the floor is wet. And because the floor is wet, they can dig it up the clay, which is the earth at the bottom makes clay when it's wet, and they can make two bison in the cave right at the end of this cave system and what i loved is that i could describe that in a really visual i hope almost um novelistic way mm -hmm. but i've read academic papers that um <laughs> recount um, some kalahari trackers were taken to this cave system and they were taken into the cave and they can tell just by the heel prints in the clay that's still there that this was a teenager and an older adult in their 40s and so you can by using the clues that other art historians, archaeologists have come across, you can actually make something quite, um, I hope, um, impactful, like you're back there with these people making this sculpture, to, tr to really try and consider, before writing, we have no written record of why these sculptures were made, but to really look at the clues and then deduce what we think. And if you're back in time with me, hopefully it sparks things in your own mind as well. Mm -hmm. Because I think quite often with art history, you're told what to think. Absolutely. Um, and for me, it, you know, art should never, ever be like that. When I was in my early 20s, I taught American students who had a semester in London. Uh, and I absolutely loved it because they came over. They were maths majors or science majors. They came to London. They did their one module of art that they had to do. And I thought, they're not going to be that committed. So let's go out to galleries. And some of the things they said were so profound about <laughs> the art we looked at from Seurat to Van Dyke. Um, that I, it just sort of sparked something in me, I think. And I've, I've been doing that ever since, you know, so important to get in front of the work of art or imagine yourself, you know, in this cave system because others have, have done this, this thing, but, you know, first. And, and I was just fascinated by, by that, but I, it did mean that I went down a lot of rabbit holes, you know, so <laughs> a 40 page paper on how gold was transported from um, Western Africa across the Sahara, or, you know, would spend days reading this paper about the Kalahari trackers. So yeah, I did a, quite a few rabbit holes to, um, to try and get these very tight, uh, rich introductions. But yeah. hopefully by time traveling with me, you feel, you feel more of a sense of what it was to be an artist when it was made, not what it's like to go to the National Gallery and look at art today. Well, exactly. Both an artist and a viewer and who the art was intended for. And, you know, it completely, um, you know, I think that walking into a museum, 
you, especially if you're, you know, like in a hurry, like you've got to, you know, hit, hit the greatest hits, for example, you know, anybody who would go into, you know, a, a huge encyclopedic art museum and know that as a tourist, there are things you have to see. And you have absolutely no sense that you are literally time traveling, that you are speeding through, um, you know, 17,000 years as you're going from one gallery to the next. If you, if you could, um, you know, really imagine that your brain would explode. And so we don't imagine it at all. And that's also a loss because museums have that kind of authority and kind of intellectual, I've described it as that kind of intellectual velvet rope. You know, you feel like you can't go past, you know, that, that by having a painting in a frame, it has this aura of timelessness and I think really good art historians, or at least really, um, you know, art historians who really care about making the art very relatable, really want to break down that timelessness and actually put you into the time. And Absolutely. yeah, um, and so it's just, it's very refreshing to see an, an art history, um, you know, kind of anthology do that as opposed to saying, okay, you feel intellectually distanced from it, here's an intellectually distancing text that's going to reinforce that, just like a museum does. Yeah, um, and I think it helped me, if you if you do that at the beginning, you know, it, it, I felt it helped me show that this was a book that wasn't going to be like other books perhaps people have read on art. Mm -hmm. And it was really important for me to that this book was always going to be an update on that kind of anthology of art, because a lot of the great ones... Um, I mean, the one in, in this country would be Ernst Gombrich's Story of Art, which is right. sold around the world, 8 million copies. Um, but, it, you know, it was written in 1950. And of course, <laughs> you know, he was a phenomenal art historian in terms of having that narrative thrust and, and taking us with him on a journey. But there was one woman in the whole book, one right. woman artist. <laughs> so it, it's outdated. Um, and, you know, he was a man of his time. And so it, it needed, there needs to be an update of art history. And so by just shaking up the introductions a little bit and making them much more about the reader, uh, about the context the work was made in, hopefully it allows you to think, hmm, this is a bit different from what I've read before. Yeah. And it allows you, I hope, some latitude to come with me on that journey because, you know, I, I have inserted artists you might not have heard of before into a, a relatively small volume in art history and each of these artists punches above their weight. You know, then mm -hmm. nobody is in there just because they are a particular color, a particular gender. Yeah. So these are artists we have just neglected. Right. You know, they, they punch really hard. Um, but I wanted them to feel comfortable in the book. So I think, you know, those openings, I hope, are you're there and you're in the moment. And then hopefully we can we can go off together and look at art after that. The, it, it's interesting. You kind of bring up... Um, a little bit of a conflict between this absolutely critical and necessary update to the canon, and we'll we'll come back to the canon. Um, mm -hmm. But you know how art history textbooks, exactly the right word, have just neglected uh, so much. You know, and and you can't. I think that it's fair to say you can't neglect what never was. You know, so I think that looking for a kind of equity between um, women artists, you know, artists in, you know, I think it's a little bit of, I think it's a little lazy to say we only focus on on dead white men. 
um, when there's so much more. And yes, there is more, but not as much as we think because of certain barriers, you know, and I think that that needs to be recognized too. Um, and at the same time, so we have this necessary updating and simultaneously, what I really appreciate about this book too, is that when you do look at art in its own context, that means not looking at it through the eyes of our moment, Mm -hmm. um, through 2022 eyes and allowing art to have met its own moment and kind of going back there without necessarily our own expectations of of what we should see, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I mean, some of the women artists I put in the Renaissance, late Renaissance, um, uh, Baroque, I absolutely wanted to put them back in in the context in which they existed. So someone like Elisabetta Serrani, an Italian artist, 17th century, lived in Bologna. By 16, she was running her father's art studio because he had gout. Uh, she set up her own art academy for women because there wasn't one. Um, she was a uh, you know, phenomenal artist, was earning the same money as the leading male painters of her time. She died when she was just 27, but was buried with full state honors uh, in the way that the leading artist Guido Reni had died before her. He was older, but she was buried in his tomb. So, you know, they absolutely at the time she was seen as his equal. So I wanted to put her back in without saying, oh, and of course it was really hard as a woman or, uh, you know, which it was, and I do say that elsewhere, but I wanted to put her back in as an equal because it's actually art history that's neglected her, not the artists of the time. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that was really important to go back and try and make it as contemporary to the time in which these artists were working as possible, because actually artists are really inclusive if the art is good enough. You know, yeah. they are really <laughs> picky in terms of good art, bad art, but actually women artists, when they were good enough and when they fought hard enough to get their work seen, they were sought out by, you know, someone like Sofonisba Anguissola, another Italian artist painted in the court of Philip II of Spain. Caravaggio copied her drawings. Michelangelo corresponded with her. Van Dyck sought her out when she was in her 90s, still painting, mm. just to chat with her about art and paint her. I mean, these are these are women who men were seeking out and being influenced by, you know, you're quite right. They are not on equal terms and you know there's one or two of them in each male dominated academy mm -hmm. until the 19th 20th century but when they are there the ones that are that, are, that i put in the book are are equals yeah and i think one thing you know since since the 1970s of course with feminism and later with um uh black history these uh, book people have written amazing books on artists within those categories but again they sort of keep them separate right and don't put them back with the male artists and i didn't want to do that i've never wanted to write a book on women artists for example you know i've yep. written a little book on feminism because that's a movement and that's very interesting mm -hmm. but i didn't want to just focus on women artists because actually i think it does them a disservice i, agree. I think these are artists that are excellent and should be alongside those male artists and yes a few male artists had to make way to fit them in but I think, you know, there's still not parity in the book. There's maybe, there are over 100 women, which I'm very happy about. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are over 200 men. Yeah. So we're not at parity. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we have, we have definitely got more of them back in the story. And hopefully it makes people go, oh, that's interesting. I'll, I'll look into that myself. Yeah. No, I, I had a, an interesting conversation actually with the Gorilla Girls 
um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> where I I kind of pushed back a little. I mean, who am I to push back on the Gorilla Girls? That they they too are a movement, and I I respect their work incredibly. Um, but I also do find that isolating uh, women, you know, kind of isolating people who who historically have been marginalized within the larger canon, um, absolutely does them a disservice. Uh, I talked about with them how I had done these podcast episodes for uh, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's Women Take the Floor, and that as monumental a show as that was, and it, it was, and I, I'm not I'm not pushing back against the curators because I think that audiences do expect a show like this, and I think that there's tremendous value to a show like this, but I also think that putting Carmen Herrera next to Georgia O'Keeffe, next to Frida Kahlo, is telling a really like misshapen history of art, and it demands more of them than is necessary. You know, why can't they speak to their movement? Why do they have to be representing all of womanhood as though they are in a different art historical canon. Right, because um, you wouldn't do that with male artists. Exactly, no, or artists, as, as we call them, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it really kind of, it was an interesting reckoning in my own head because I do think that, that attention must be paid to who has been neglected. At the same time, I think that it takes a lot of thoughtfulness to figure out how to pay attention in a way that still puts their art first. And I think that what you said about um, about you know artists will always take another artist as long as their art's good enough <laughs> um, okay. is a really uh, salient point. I, I wonder how that fits into like what is your definition of the canon because i think that that actually takes into account if the art is good and how did you in kind of winnowing down the artists that you wanted to include what to you defines an artist who really should be part of the canon i think um i actually don't use the word canon at all and it's on purpose because it's been okay. so it's been so um associated with what's gone before mm -hmm. with the idea of there is um there is great art that's in the canon then there's other stuff that isn't in the canon and the canon the word canon itself felt so loaded and so connected to those that older reading of it you know i mean art history is not that old as a discipline 250 300 years there's a formal discipline in universities and ever since then it you know since the very beginnings it was taught by white men so of course the word canon is associated with their teachings their writings mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, i was trained in that you know in that canon i imagine like you yeah were, me you know, too that, yeah yeah so and, and and you'd be offered a kind of feminist class maybe but on the whole it was was the work of white western men i was um looking at um so i sort of just avoided the whole world and thought uh, the whole word sorry and and i thought actually if i don't think about it in that way and if i just have a kind of bar of excellence and that is whether someone was really significant in terms of being a big influence whether mm -hmm. their art is just in my mind just too great not to put in uh whether they're representative of something bigger that we really need to be aware of whether they're tackling something in the 21st century like climate change that we should all be thinking of 
or whether you know when you're looking at prehistoric art which examples do you put in do you put the the examples from France, for example, that have been known for many decades, there's a lot of research on, or do you look at the work in Sulawesi, which has only just been discovered, which is older? Um, and so I thought, actually, you can put you can put a bit of everything in and ask questions about it and just kind of prod it a bit <laughs> um, and put these uh, representatives of artists who haven't been in the canon for a while um, and let's see what happens to that. So I think I was, instead of having, the word canon to me just, just has boundaries. And I suppose I, I wanted to have a bar of which everything had to be above, but I didn't want to have any boundaries. Mm -hmm. uh, so things could be included that uh, alongside each other. And I think, you know, historically, if you look at, um, you know, primers on art history, you'll have a chapter on African art, or you'll have a right. chapter on Oceanic <laughs> art. And I thought, you know what, I, they should be alongside, you know, these things are happening. The one thing in the world that we have is time that none of us can run away from. We, you know, these things were existing at the same time. Now, why is the Renaissance happening here? And the sculptures in Rapa Nui are these giant colossal figures being trans kind of walked across the island. You know, why is why is the Renaissance happening and why is that happening at the same time? So I think it's quite nice to have them side by side, just to show that there isn't that neat one um, story through art, but actually there's lots of stories. And the, the skill, hopefully, um, when you put it all in one book is to knit it together into something that feels a bit more cohesive. Yeah, no, I was actually just thinking of knitting metaphors. <laughs> and, you know, Weaving, that, knitting, I had quite yeah. a lot of that going on because I think, you know, before it was that single path and it was, you know, lights off everywhere else, you're just spotlighting that single path that's been, that is in fact artificial um looking at one perspective and i think we all know that you know that's very exclusive and actually it's much richer and more exciting to to look at all the different perspectives and paths that are out there yeah. uh, and then the path metaphor got too complex so i'm like actually it's like weaving so you yeah. have all these brands and it's how they come together and what becomes important what's dominating on the top of your weaving maybe and what's underneath um so i thought that was a richer metaphor maybe I was thinking about how uh, I'm looking at, you know, all the textbooks that are on my bookshelf and the way that, you know, so I, I started university in 2001 and then I've been, you know, so I've been, I've had art history textbooks in my hands basically since then. And I've been teaching um, and it's been interesting watching art history textbooks change and watching um, the way that. Yeah, I've, I was a teaching assistant at a number of different places and and the way that teaching an art history, you know, 101 would change from unquestionably linear and chronological, um, just like my textbooks were when I was a student and moving towards uh, thematic chapters that I didn't love, <laughs> to be honest. I yeah. and I found that teaching classes like that, especially because, um, you know, art history one hundred and one. You know, sure you'll get a handful of majors, but you also get, uh, you know, usually it's like a, a gen ed requirement. And so, like you said, you know, you get people from, you know, who are studying physics or studying government who are, you know, not necessarily planning to major in this stuff, and they're being presented with instead of 
this is the high Italian Renaissance. And in order to understand it, you need to understand, you know, the medieval period before that, the, you know, what, what is being Renaissance, you know, what is being revived. So getting into ancient Greece and, you know, suddenly you realize that you can't, you can't not be a time traveler. You know, everything has a movement before it that helps to explain what comes after. And so I, you know, instead of, like I said, starting with the Italian Renaissance, and this course would be taking, um, you know, the Mona Lisa and putting it entirely in the context of, okay, suddenly the artist matters. Hmm. And that was the theme, was the importance of the artist and the importance of the patron. And it felt like two conversations that were talking past each other it felt like there was the thematic way and there was the chronological way and i didn't understand how they weren't dependent on each other especially if you're starting from from scratch and i kind of wonder because in your book you both take chapters thematically but it is still chronological yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah how how did you reconcile the two well i'm i'm with you i think you know the one thing we cannot um change is the chronology you know these artists exist in a moment in a time and if you look at something thematically i mean a lot of academic texts started to go thematically because they understood that the single story of art was much more complex and messy and the only way to really get a handle on it as an academic when you work in a much you know tighter smaller field where you're an expert is to look thematically because you're aware that what you're presenting cannot be everything anymore mm -hmm. so you know before you'd be a world expert on let's say Leonardo da Vinci and now they realize that that's you know not possible that there are all these other conversations that are going on so I think the thematic thing and in museum hangs Tate Modern did it when it opened in 2000 it hung its collection thematically and I was really anti it because yeah. for me, without that underpinning of chronology, of understanding where things fit, you cannot then, as just as you said, piece together the themes. So it's almost like the foundations are the chronology and then mm -hmm. the themes are the interesting curatorial side. But without the foundations, your house is going to blow over or <laughs> you're not really going to be able to do much with it. So, you know, for me, they are they're really, really coexist mm -hmm. um, but if it's just chronology then you're living in this like institutional like hospital right and i think <laughs> chronology used to be just effectively europe and america you know western art yeah um and so and that's why i think that, you know one of the hardest things to do when you're looking at chronology you know in the in the west certainly since the renaissance the idea is that uh, artists the idea has been that art is progressive that it's linear that it moves forward that it develops so that makes it very difficult to cover something like the literati painter in china who who painted in a traditional style for a thousand years you know so i have two artists in the book who represent the whole of that literati movement a thousand mm -hmm. years of of art um and almost to pull them out is wrong because mm -hmm. It's not like pulling out Michelangelo and Leonardo and Raphael at the, you know, the very high point of the Renaissance. Um, so you you have to kind of go with it a little bit, but you know the, um, I think I think then within certain moments you notice, hmm, well this is interesting because lots of artists across the um, across Europe perhaps are challenging slavery, for example, at the end of the 18th century. So you can be thematic because within that time frame 
at that period, we've got to um, a kind of thematic point. And so it really was just, you know, I have very uh, endless color coded charts and uh, <laughs> papers that, you know, would kind of explode around my office at home, uh, trying to make sense of it, trying to get that balance between chronology, because I think chronology really, when you're new to art history is the, the only underpinning you have, mm -hmm. but then the themes make it exciting and make mm -hmm. it interesting. Um, and certainly when it came to the later chapters, you know, I found it the, the last, say, three chapters really hard to write because that's a period I've lived through. I have lots of artist friends who are mm -hmm. not in the book. Um, uh, you know, so then I thought it has to be thematic because we haven't got that distillation of history yet that, um, that you know, art from Roman times and Greek times, we only have what's left. It's much easier to work with in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will admit the last few chapters were my favorite because that <laughs> that's also, you know, not just something that, that just feels a lot closer chronologically, but I'm just fascinated by more recent history and, and the art that came yeah, from and the, it. And that, you know, Yale were, were great in supporting that because the balance of the book, it kind of pivots around the Impressionists. So so uh, while we keep chronologically, there's a lot more on the 19th and 20th century than there is on the, let's say, 7th and 8th century. There's a yeah. lot more to go on. But there's also a lot more interest. You know, we yeah. are all fascinated by recent history. Um, and me too, you know, I'm a modern and contemporary scholar. So, um, you know, I, I thought it was only fair to be representative. But also I think, you know, as we get closer to now, it gets exciting because we we may, if you're as old as I am, you remember certain certain periods like the young British artists. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, it's exciting to learn about Basquiat and Keith Haring in this kind of crazy exhibition in the 80s or, um, you know, the, the artists now working in these kind of big biennials and um, mega museum shows. And will that stay post-COVID? Who knows? So, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's it's just exciting, the later chapters. But I absolutely loved researching the early chapters, too. But, you mm -hmm. know, they to look to, to put the whole of Greek art into one chapter was a, was a fairly well, <laughs> Um, I mean, I, you know, anybody who, who listens to uh, The Lonely Palette will probably recognize that, you know, I did an, an episode on a, on a Roman sculpture. And in order to talk about it, I basically covered all of ancient Greek art. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was like the episode that's going to talk about basically ancient art and otherwise you know i have a whole episode on Cezanne and a whole episode on van gogh and a whole episode on Seurat. you know and it's like it's so clear to me you know why the uh subtleties and the nuances between this post-impressionist versus that post-impressionist i mean clearly you can see where my interest lies and and i feel like there's just so much more to say about that but look i was trained as a modernist so you know yeah, that's going to be my perspective there's a lot more material out there. So you have the letters, yeah. you have photographs, you have all the works, you, uh, you you have them on display in galleries. You know, with the Greek art, they're just, um, you know, there's some great sculptures, but mainly known from Roman copies. And there's no painting or well, some tiny fragments now, mm -hmm. but no, you know, so we just don't have a full picture. And yeah. I think that, you know, that, and, you know, the sculptures we have aren't painted. So we now know they were painted. You know, it's a very different, what we have are tiny clues. That's it yeah. really. Whereas when you look at Cezanne's paintings, you know, there may be a little bit of discoloration in the old one, but really what you see is what he painted. Yeah, Which and is, we have their own fun. manifestos. We have their own writings and their own descriptions of it. And that's actually why I love so much the idea of, of a 40-year-old standing with, you know, a child and 
suddenly you recognize, oh, I'm almost 40. I have a child. You know, that's us in the cave. That is an incredibly powerful, you know, simple, but unbelievably powerful, you know, just, I'll use that word again, recalibration for what what we think this art is. You know, yeah, these, well, these bowls weren't created to sit in stands behind glass in museums. Exactly that. I, I you know, I really wanted to, to, I think, I think a lot of the people are scared of art. They're scared of Absolutely. art because we use really bad language to describe it. Purposefully obfuscatory, purposefully um, obtuse. Um, you know, it does have its own language. You can actually speak about art without using any of that language, which I have done in this book. You know, you don't hear, read Chiris Curacuro. And it's or... not patronizing either. You know, no, to, to no, simplify no. it, I think people think that if they understand it, it must have been dumbed down for them. And it's such a shame that people feel that way but i think you know of course a medical textbook would use all the latin names but you can write about science science and medicine without it and i think science leads the way here i think there's a lot of great popular science books podcasts uh, radio programs that really make science exciting and they don't use any big words and they actually laugh about what they don't know um you know and i think i, I tried to have that in mind when i was writing this you know this is not art history by you know um someone who is a leading academic at cambridge university that is not who i am you know i am an art critic and, and i i have a phd but i'm not i'm a kind of reluctant art, um, art historian <laughs> me too <laughs> i'm very interested in writing and in the power of writing to express how exciting art is mm -hmm. and i think you know going back to those those chapter openers it was the simplest way to take people with me to look at the art. You know, I love the idea of being in Jericho's studio when he painted the Raft of the Medusa, which if you go to the Louvre, is this giant work, mm -hmm. seven meters wide, five meters tall. It's quite brown now. It's quite, you know, it feels like it's discolored to me, but he painted it in a kind of fever. But in his studio, he had body parts you know, that he got from the morgue to sketch from. Yeah. I mean, imagine the smell of that. I, know. I, I just wanted to make people think oh actually that would be quite grim um so mm -hmm. he must have been really into it and then his friends would come and you know lounge off a chair or something to be one of the dead bodies so Delacroix is one of the bodies in that uh and and posed for him you know I think that's really exciting imagine yeah. your friend coming and you know you sketch them and then they turn up in your painting so I just wanted to take the yeah I wanted to take all that um the art history out of art in a way yeah <laughs> and put the excitement back in you know and hopefully you know, there's a lot of stealth art history in there. And, and as I said to you before, to write those introductions, you know, I may have been reading four or five papers on JSTOR just to write a page, but I didn't want to show that. I mm -hmm. want to just show that art is exciting and, and lovely and brilliant and moving and emotional. Yeah, I will definitely say for your book, you don't see the brushstrokes. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, no, I mean it as a compliment. I think that I think that being able to describe art and history actually with a very clean narrative um, is not necessarily doing a disservice to all the citations and all the footnotes and all the, you know, not all academics are great writers. And I think there's, you know, academia rewards the visibility of your research. and if you simply collate these larger ideas into a clean, tight narrative, that's what people want to read, but it doesn't, you know, that's, it's just not, it's just not what academia rewards. 
And so you end up with books that, that like you say, are, are completely unintelligible, even by other academics. You know, I, I only have a master's, but, you know, I, I remember, I look back at my own, my own writing and I realize that the only person who could understand what the hell I was saying was my advisor. No, you can just end up, you know, certainly with a PhD, you end up writing for 12 people in the world, if you're yeah. lucky, who are interested in what you've written. Um, you know, I think if, if anyone looked back through my files for this book, when I write the chapter, I write with citations. You know, I need to know where my research mm -hmm. is coming from. I needs to be watertight. But it needs to be written in a way that those citations are purely for my reference so I can mm -hmm. go back and check things. And of course, there are no footnotes in the, in the book. Um, I, you know, and it's hard to do that. And it, it makes it hard to, you know, I don't quote that many people because you have to put everything in the in the text but actually you know why not set yourself a challenge i think it's it's a good challenge to be set but yeah th th those books academic books of course have a place and i use them heavily <laughs> to research to research my book but i think art can exist on lots of different levels for different people and this is definitely an introduction or a, a kind of refresh if your art history is you know i was at university in the 90s so definitely i didn't get a book like this i got gone break or mm -hmm. Um, honor and Fleming as my starting points mm -hmm. and you know, even yeah, I'm looking over I've got I've got Jansen and Stockstead yeah, and, I, and <laughs> um, you know and those books did kind of compartmentalize art that wasn't western and if they included it at all um, and although Gombrich had that incredible narrative voice he didn't you know he to make the narrative um, easier to write there are no, you know, no one woman artist, Kathy Colwitz, and no real artists of, of colour that, that you would uh, put in the debate like Mary Edmonia Lewis or Jacob Lawrence, who absolutely should be in that 19th, 20th century canon. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I think it was uh, it was definitely time for an update. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about about kind of the difference between uh the kind of writing that I think you and I both strive to do and um, and the more academic writing that I, I made a conscious effort to move away from. And my husband's a musician and he he didn't he didn't coin this, but he likes to say it um, that, uh, you know, you can you can learn a thousand chords for three people or you can learn three chords for a thousand people. And <laughs> um, and you know, not to say that, you know, I think, I think you and I both just by our training, you know, we have the thousand chords in us. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes a song is just three chords, and that's going to resonate with so many people and that there are stories that can be told that bring somebody really into that movement, that period, that don't require that much more, you know, just a way of speaking to people so that they feel like this artist and this artist's experience could be theirs or visiting this artwork in its context could touch them in the same way. And, and uh, it goes way beyond art. Um, you know, when I was trying to, to pick a major, the reason why I liked art history so much was because it felt like in one degree, I was getting psychology, religion, studio art, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, history, obviously, but but poetry, you know, it felt like all of that was encompassed by this particular avenue into understanding the, the human condition. Um, you know, it felt like 
art history allowed me to really see human beings in so much of their complexity. And that was really exciting to me. And it meant that I didn't have to necessarily focus on any one of those other disciplines or, you know, majors as a student, but that this one was, was remarkably robust. And that's what's so frustrating when people say, oh, I don't like art or <laughs> not for me, because art, art was there before writing, before words, you know, we think, you know, writing's only a few thousand years old. And, and art has been, we know, you know, we found art that's 45,000 years old. I imagine it'll go back a bit further than that. There's paint unbelievably found from 100,000 years ago in South mm. Africa in the Blombos Cave. Um, you know, so this is something that's instinctive. It's part of us creating pictures, creating um, visual um, things that communicate beyond words, because if they didn't communicate beyond words, we could just speak and we wouldn't need them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's just so vital. And, you know, art has, has changed, you know, I know, I think of someone like William Hogarth, who uh, had the gin laws rewritten through producing some prints that showed the this kind of awful epidemic of gin in, in Britain in the 18th century. All the artists now, like Oliver Larson or Heather Mm. Aykroyd and Dan Harvey, who um, tackled climate change. You know, they allow us to see the world differently. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that way, you know, artists and scientists are not that far apart. They're just coming from different perspectives. But that's what's frustrating when people think art is just framed canvases in in galleries from, you know, several centuries ago. It isn't just that. And I hope in my own little way in this book that, you know, I can show people it's exciting and, mm-hmm. and why, why we should all have a little bit of art in our lives. Yeah, beautifully put. <laughs> um, it's interesting to hear you put it that way, the idea that, that art and making art and a lot of times, you know, appreciating, you know, standing in front of an artwork is beyond words because my whole um, thing has been putting it back into words. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and I forget, you know, and it's hard. It's so hard to, uh, you know, the most recent episode I did was, was Sarah Z's Fallen Sky. And so much of what she does, I mean, Fallen Sky is, is kind of an outlier for the kind of work that she does. But when you really dig into it, not really, you know, she she's fascinated by um, kind of permanence and impermanence and the way that uh, the impermanence allows your, you know, how she can take a material and give you the opportunity to time travel into your own memory by your associations with those materials. And that took like a month to figure out how to say, <laughs> you know, I mean, that set like now it just flows off my tongue because because I really hammered away at it. But you can just go and and be it. You can just feel it. Um, you don't have to describe it over 2,500 words, but that's my job. And that's your job to figure out how to articulate these really large philosophical existential deeply human ideas in a way that people are going to understand it because i think that that's also what what you and i put first and foremost is how do you explain this stuff so that somebody else can like take the baton 
and say, okay, now I'm going to run with it. Absolutely. And that is, you've hit the nail on the head because that's really important. You know, there isn't, there isn't just your definition of what the artwork's about or mine or even the artists, <laughs> you know, the, the, the great thing when an artwork's created, it sort of exists. It sort of floats away a little bit from the artists and exists and yeah, you have yeah. a view on it and I have a view on it and they may be similar, but they may be quite different. And someone else looking at that who listens to your podcast or reads my book may have a different view and that's valid too. And I think that's what's, uh, liberating about when you do when you are able to um, verbalize what you think about a work is because you can hopefully allow it to have a little bit of slippage like a poem and say actually it's not just about this this is my reading of it this is one way to look at it and you know it someone like you you're an expert in this field that you spend that month looking at a work and and come up with a reading that's the most coherent to you. But there's always a place for the, the viewer or the listener to go further or to go in a different direction. And that's what I love about art. You know, mm-hmm. There isn't, and that's why I make the analogy to poetry quite a lot. Because often with a poem, you can see the whole structure of the poem. Um, even if it's a crazy Apollinaire poem, you can see, you visualize it like a painting or like mm-hmm. um, a sculpture. And you see it instantly, but it can take you a lifetime to really feel you know it mm. um, and uh, and get into it and think about it. And that's why, you know, like you said, when you go to a gallery and you zoom about and you see the top 10 highlights in the Prado or something, it would be almost better to just go and look at one work and really mm. look at it and really have a connection with it. And whatever you think is valid and is true. Because that's what, you know, art is. It's a personal relationship between you and the work of art. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to, to describe poetry that way. I've never heard it described that way, and I really like it. I'm thinking about um, the, you know, the last time I labored this way, the way that I did with the um, the Sarah Z episode, was trying to tackle Anselm Kiefer. And specifically Kiefer's panels uh, at SF MoMA based on the Paul Ceylon poem. And that's just layer upon layer, never mind how layered his canvases are, like physically. Um, but going into the layers of an artist interpreting a poem, and then me, separate from that kind of being the the third leg of the stool saying how can i then explain in in language you know kind of in a more prosaic way what is happening here and it was <laughs> it was brutal um <laughs> but it was also it was it was just it was incredible you know watching the way that different minds interpret different artistic modes when Ceylon is also attempting to describe his own historical lived life, as is Kiefer. So, <laughs> you know, it's a lot. And, you know, and yeah, with Kiefer, I, you know, I, I put him in my book. He got maybe a sentence or two. Uh, <laughs> I'm jealous. I mean, well, no, but, you know, that to, you know, I've, I've gone to so many of his exhibitions. I know his work really well. To distill that into mm-hmm. a sentence or two was, you know, like you, I, you know, I, every word in the book is there on purpose. Yeah. You know, every word has been thought about and quite often changed, cut, spliced, you know, moved around, thought about again, ditched, a new word added, the yeah. old word comes back. Because 
uh, you know, language, as you said, language matters, you know, it, they, it, all we're doing is offering an interpretation and then the reader can hopefully it sparks them to, to have their own journey with that particular work. But you want to spark, you know, something. Uh, and then so then, like you said, the use of language is really, really fundamental to that, to to not lock the work down. Mm -hmm. but to, to keep the freshness and the appeal of the work and the mm -hmm. excitement of the work and but also to pack it with as much biographical information as you can and context so people feel that they can place the work mm -hmm. um you know it's hard and you know um that's why you know we uh, we we battle on a daily basis i guess with this but you know the the reward is when you do get those words like you said you know with the sarah z you go oh i've done it i've got those words now you know you how to articulate what you're feeling but mm -hmm. that you know it goes back to that thing that art is always going to be difficult to to write about yeah. and it's why artists often aren't the best at talking about their art because if they could talk about it they wouldn't make it because yeah. they would talk you know that there's a there's things you can say in art that are so complex and so um layered that it does take time to unpick them and that's all right too it doesn't mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if we get a bit of it wrong i don't think you know, I think everyone's reading is valid. Yeah, yeah. No, it was a it was a pretty um, unexpected moment when I was in college when I realized that I wasn't an artist; I was a writer. Um, I just I couldn't I because I had been art focused, you know, fine art focused um, all through. I mean, my mom is an artist. I've been drawing as long as I could hold a pencil, and so. Um, Did you feel you had to be one or the other? You can't be both? I wanted to be the other. Um, it took so much pressure off of trying to articulate myself artistically uh, when I didn't, it just wasn't how I, I expressed myself. You know, I could render something. Sarah Z actually talks about how, you know, she was trained as a painter and at a certain point being able to render something you know, to, to look like the thing became an athletic skill. It wasn't the art anymore. And so she had to move on from that. And I felt that way too. I felt like, sure, I can draw what's in front of me, but it's, it, I'm not saying anything, you know, this is flexing a muscle. This isn't, this isn't really speaking to anything that's particularly interesting to me. And more than that, it got tedious. And I felt like, you know, when I started writing about art, I was like, oh, this this is my art. <laughs> but some of the best writers in Britain, for sure, uh, were artists. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, it, I'm thinking of um, Adrian Still now, who's the Guardian art critic, um, or Matthew Collins writes well on art. You know, they they were trained artists, just like yourself, because you have an understanding of um, uh, of art from the inside. Um, and I think, you know, you won't be alone in there'll be lots of, you know, art historians or art writers who who have that similar uh, ability to do the um, the basics of art, the fundamentals of art. But that actually what you want to say, you say better in words and therefore you've made that switch. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. OK, I'll, I'll just ask you one more question that I know is a little cringy, but always worth <laughs> asking anyway. Do you have a favorite artist? No, that is like asking me if I have a favorite child. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, you know, I can't help but admire Artemisa Gentileschi. So mm. she may be an obvious choice, but I think her paintings, you know, I 
I absolutely loved her before I put her in the book, but it was a good excuse to look at her paintings more. We had a brilliant exhibition in London in um, 2019 of her paintings. And I thought, you know what? She's not just a great woman artist of the 17th century. She's probably the best artist of the 17th century that the West has produced. Mm. And, and that was quite a tipping point for me to, to place, you know, it, it helped me start placing women back into where they needed to be, not as women artists, but as great artists. And that felt important. So I would say, look at her Judith beheading Holofernes, the second version. I mean, my God, you can see she's looked at herself in the mirror um, to, to be Judith hacking the head off the drunk general Holofernes because, uh, you know, you can just see she's got a double chin from the effort. Her breast is squashed from the effort. She's absolutely hacking away at this. Her maid is pinning him down. It feels really believable. Uh, and I think, you know, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for writing this book. Well, thank you for reading the book. And it's been lovely to chat to you today. And you uh, need to go back to uh, being a mom by the sound of things. Yeah, okay. I, I wasn't sure if the mic was picking that up. Speaking of picking a favorite child, <laughs> my favorite child is the one who's not crying right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, where, can, where can folks find your book? So it's in all good bookstores, hopefully in all galleries. Uh, and on the, uh, I'm not even going to say the word, but online as well. <laughs> well, thank you again and take care. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. You too. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.